Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram, and it would be great to see you there. But getting right into our episode today, and I have to say I've been a massive fan of this company for a long time, and so I'm thrilled we can make this episode happen. And so with that, I'm very excited to welcome Goddard Abel. Now, Goddard is the founder and CEO at G2, the company helping millions of businesses make better product buying decisions every month. To date, Goddard has raised over $100 million in funding with G2, from the likes of Excel, IVP, High Alpha, Pritz Group and Chicago Ventures, just to name a few. As for Goddard, he founded his first business, Big Machines, in 2000, a business he scaled to $50 million in revenue and over 300 people up until its acquisition to Oracle 11 years later for $400 million. Goddard then became CEO at Steelbrick, where he took them from 5 to 200 employees and increased bookings by 37 times in 7 quarters. Steelbricks was ultimately acquired by Salesforce, where he spent a year and a half before starting G2. I'd also have to say a huge thank you to Tim Kopp at High Park Ventures partners for some fantastic question suggestions today. I really do so appreciate that, Tim. But before we dive into the episode today, you have to check out GoNimbly. GoNimbly is the world's first revenue operations consultancy for SaaS companies. Revenue operations is a framework that makes revenue the key metric for your entire organization, resulting in more efficient and productive teams, a better customer experience, and maximized revenue. GoNimbly helps companies create an operational roadmap and executes work as an extension of their internal team. Their founder, Jason, is also currently working on a book about how to transform your operations and increase your company's revenue by 26% through RevOps. You can check them out today at gonimbly.com. And if revenue is one core focus, your customers have to be the other. And Reviews.io is the first and only review platform to offer a truly unified Salesforce customer feedback management experience, enabling your business to save time and money while monitoring and improving customer service and revenue. In addition to Salesforce integration, Reviews.io also announces competitor analysis. This powerful tool gives businesses updated reviews scores and history for their chosen competitors, allowing them to spot trends in customer sentiment and take swift action. Collecting reviews for your business with Reviews.io, a Google licensed review partner, improves online visibility, click-through rates, and conversion by introducing star ratings across paid and organic Google search results. And even better, Reviews.io integrates with 30 online platforms. For your free product demo, sign up now at Reviews.io or search Reviews.io in the Salesforce app exchange, and listeners get a free 30-day trial by simply mentioning the the podcast when they sign up. And last but by no means least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO at Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments and subscription management platform. It ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Hi Harry, my tip for this week is on how to make major decisions. Make major decisions based on data and not gut feel. As entrepreneurs, we at times are guilty of making major decisions based on instinct and not based on data, especially in the early days. Avoid big mistakes by taking the time, getting the data, making the decision. Rinse, wash, repeat. Thanks so much for that, Tyler. Informed decision-making is one of the keys to success. You can also find success with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough from me, so I'm very, very excited to hand over to Goddard Abel, founder and CEO at G2. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Goddard, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, having heard so many great things, both from Tim at High Park and from Alex at IVP. So thank you so much for joining me today, Goddard. Harry, excited to be on with you. 
I would love to kick off today with a little bit about you, a seasoned veteran, so to speak. So I want to start with a couple of great decades in the business. How did you make your way, though, into the world of SaaS and come to found G2 today? Well, G2 in some ways is you know the fourth or fifth startup I've helped to build. And I really got going now about 20 years ago. And actually right here in Palo Alto, California, I was in business school at Stanford in the late 90s, missed the dot-com boom. And I met a couple Stanford computer science students. And I was like to say, too bad it wasn't Larry and Sergey who were starting <laughs> Uber at the time. But uh, two other software engineers building something much more mundane. It was kind of a, a time and expense software system. And so that's that was my first start. Helped them build that. We sold it to a bigger startup Niku, which went public in the beginning of 2000. And then I decided it was time to start my own company. Now, I always ruthlessly use the show for my own intellectual advancement. And I've never seen a bust, Goddard, in terms of macroeconomic environments. Tell me, having been through multiple now, how's that affected and impacted your kind of operating mentality today, having seen it a couple of times now? Yeah, and I lived through two busts. You know, the worst was right after we started Big Machines in 2000, we had a massive bust in 2001. You know, first the dot-com bubble blew up and then 9-11 happened. And I remember being out here in the Silicon Valley then, you could actually literally get a hotel room in San Francisco for $29 a night because uh, Priceline was just coming out and everything was empty. So it was, I think, the most severe recession I've certainly lived through, especially in tech. But I really, I think it did learn a lot. It was very humbling because I you know, raised a bunch of money for my first startup in machines in 2000, raised over $20 million, hired up to about 70 people. And then by 2002, realized we were on a way to going bankrupt. You know, in that deep recession in 2002, we weren't able to sell any customers and they all thought the internet had been a fad and good thing it was over. So it was really a near-death experience. It was very painful. I had to lay off a lot of people. We went down from 70 to 20 people and a lot of them were great people. Their fault, but frankly, I'd overhired way ahead of the market and the market wasn't there. And so I think as an entrepreneur, it just, but one taught me, I think, to kind of stay frugal. It was very humbling also. You know, so I never take our success for granted because frankly, I think I was just as smart or dumb back then you know, but almost went bankrupt. And so it just kind of stuck with me that A, you have to work hard every day. B, be careful on your costs. And three, really focus on the customer because ultimately what did save us, you know, we had about a dozen good early customers. We scaled the company down to where we could just live organically off our customers' revenue. And that's how we were able to then survive from 2002 till about 2007 when the cloud market finally took off. So I do, in hindsight, I really value those years, although at the time it was very anxiety and doubt-filled and kind of a very painful time. But looking back, I think it's really what made us really good entrepreneurs. I mean, absolutely. And I love that frugal scaling. But I I do want to discuss some of the tales of repeat entrepreneurship, because it's rare that I have someone with as many incredible experiences in terms of their back pocket as you. So I want to discuss, first, you mentioned the big machines and post-sale to Oracle. You did version 2.0 with Steel Brick. Can I ask, Goddard, why did you do it twice? And what was not fixed the first time that you wanted to get right with the second? Yeah, and really, Really, I mean, to me, it was more why not? Because after Oracle bought big machines, we saw a massive opportunity in the Salesforce ecosystem. And obviously, you know, Oracle and Salesforce are more competitors. And so we knew there was an opening. And actually, at the same time, I met an entrepreneur, Max Rudman, who'd actually already been building the product that was Steelbrick. And really, I thought he'd build a better product. It was easier, faster to deploy on the Salesforce platform. But Max was, you know, he was struggling to build sales, to build a company around it. It was really 
really just him writing all the code. And he did an incredible job in bootstrapping, but he didn't really know how to take it to scale. And that's where he and I decided to partner. And then it really worked extremely well. Because the nice thing about doing a 2.0, we had a team. So we brought over 100 people over from Oracle, all the best people we had. We knew how to sell the product. We knew how to market it. So within you know seven quarters, we were able to have incredible success. I mean, teamwork makes the dream work, as that my partner always says. I, I do want to touch on the element that you mentioned being the challenging time with the big machines experience going from 70 to 20. Can I ask, what did you learn about the right way to let people go in that really challenging time? I think the, the key thing to me is just being authentic. Uh, and frankly, it's kind of ignoring the HR legal advice. You know, some people are all about compliance and say this, don't say this. But if I have to have that kind of a hard conversation to let someone go, I, I'm just very honest and I'll answer their questions. And in that case, obviously, it was also, hey, it's not you, right? It's me because, you know, we overinvested. The market isn't there. But it was painful because we were releasing them into a very tough job market because it was actually hard to get new jobs in the midst of that recession. So it felt but But I really, I think also it would just genuinely feel their pain. And I think they also appreciated that I really, you know, it was mutual pain. And But I think when they really, you know, I think when an employee, when you're having a hard conversation, when they feel like you're really feeling them and you're being authentic and you're connected, emotionally, then it helps them and it helps me get through it kind of together. Yeah, no, that kind of emotional alignment, I think, is super helpful. I did chat to our mutual friend, though, Tim Cott, before the episode, and he said that post uh, Steelbricks, obviously being acquired by Salesforce, you had some incredible learnings and takeaways from your time at Salesforce. Can I ask, what were those learnings and takeaways, and how do you think it maybe impacted your operating mentality today with G2? Yeah, and really from Mark Benioff, the founder and CEO of Salesforce, Force, I've learned a ton. Yeah, and I always learned a lot about him as a partner and going to Dreamforce and just, you know, he's just larger than my figure. But then it was fascinating while I was at Salesforce, I did have a chance to work more closely with him and also just see how he ran a company of such global scale. So there are probably three things I really took away from it. One is just having true commitment to a massive vision. And, you know, here in San Francisco, I see it every day. You drive to the city, now you see his amazing tower. But just that kind of a tower, right? That's a bet he made a few years earlier, investing, I imagine, billions of dollars to commit to that. And I think, and now he's talking about building a $50 billion company. So he always has a massive vision that he's 100% committed to. And so that also brings me to the second thing that you know, I really learned from him. He uses something called the V2 Mom to align himself and the whole company to achieving those massive visions. And so an exercise, Mark and the whole team at Salesforce goes through every year is to find their V2 Mom, which means one, putting that vision into writing. So what are we going to accomplish this year? Secondly, defining the values. And obviously, at Salesforce, it's quality, it's trust. And he has seven very clearly articulated values that he also you know, updates every year. And then defining the methods, you know, which is, hey, what are you going to do? What initiatives are you going to drive to achieve your vision? Being explicit about the O, the obstacles. And finally, defining metrics and goals. So your ACV, your ARR, your customer attention. What are the key things you're going to measure if you're delivering your vision? And really, but putting that all in writing. I think what Mark has said, you know, over 20 years now, 95% of the time when you write it down, you write it down to be 2 mom, you achieve it. And so having that explicit alignment to the vision is something we're now implementing at G2 and, and really all our companies going forward. And I think the third amazing thing Mark did was embed philanthropy in Salesforce with the 111 model. And that's something we're now doing at G2 where we're really 
investing in G2 Gives. We actually just hired a full-time director, and G2 Gives is our philanthropic initiative. We've also committed you know, at least 1% of our founding equity. We're going to give at least 1% of our employees time, and we're also giving our product, in our case, you know, our G2 Track product to nonprofits. And I just saw at Salesforce how that really connected the employees, the customers, to the vision. And then you know, when Salesforce had its massive success, they've been literally able to donate hundreds of millions of dollars and give back. And, and so building that in the model from day one very explicitly is something I'm, I'm really excited about now doing at G2 as well. Can I ask, you said that specifically about setting those deliverables and how it so helps in terms of attaining them, writing them down. I'm a massive nerd when it comes to quota construction per se. How do you think about building ambitious enough quotas for your teams to hit, but also not too ambitious that they get discouraged if they don't hit them? How do you navigate that balance, Goddard? Yeah, and I think my business partner, Chief Revenue Officer Matt Gordiak, and he really, you know, he joined me way back at Big Machines in 2004 when we were just digging our way out of that recession. But what Matt and I have, you know, we have a philosophy where we want about, you know, to hit our plan about two thirds of the time, which means it's pretty darn hard that you hit it more often than not. And I think that's a good way to really stretch and challenge yourself. And that's kind of also our goal that we get, you know, ideally in a good year, we'll get two thirds of our sales reps to club and hitting their goals, but not everyone's going to hit them because they're sufficiently hard. And, you know, so if you're still ramping learning or frankly, you're not good at your job yet, you're not going to hit your goal. And it is that balance of enough challenge, but not so much challenge that it you know, becomes demoralizing. Totally. I get you. And I like the two thirds as a ratio. You mentioned Matt there. I do want to ask, you got the band back together again for G2. And so I have to ask, how important is it to have a founding team that's previously worked together? I have to give credit to Tim Cott for that one. And when does that work, getting the team back together? You know, I think if you genuinely like and respect each other, I think it's always going to work. And really, I'd say, you know, at Steel Brick, we got as far, as I mentioned, in seven quarters as we did in 12 years at Big Machines. And the difference, obviously, there's better product market fit, but also having a dialed-in team. For example, with Matt and I, Matt really knows sales and revenue engine. And so, frankly, I don't have to worry about that. I can focus on investors, product, team building, culture. And we have many team members where we know their strengths, they're in their lane, they're in their zone of genius, and we know each other's respective zones of genius. And so we can just plug in and go. And so I think it is a, it's just a tremendous advantage. And obviously, in your first startup, you won't have that. But I think what I would say, even for my first startup, the people I started with were people I'd worked with before. You know, we knew each other, we knew each other's zones of genius. And then getting that alignment right away, I think, is a tremendous you know, competitive advantage. Yeah, no, and I love that. I, I haven't heard the zones of genius before, but I love that. You mentioned the scaling so much faster there with Steel Brace in those seven quarters. I do want to discuss the scaling of teams. When it comes to the team itself, you now have over 350 with G2, according to the trusty LinkedIn. Can I ask then, Godard, where do the cracks start to appear in the team scaling process? What can you do to get in front of it? Yeah, and I do think it gets hard. You know, most people say, kind of once you get beyond 40 or 50 people, because the early startup days, it's nice. You're truly a tribe. And I've really also enjoyed Reed Hoffman's book on, you know, hyper growth, or I think he calls it blitz scaling. You know, where he talks about at the beginning and startup is very much a family. Everyone's in one room and then maybe you're a tribe, but up to probably 40 or 50 people, everyone just knows each other. It can be very informal. You know, and every decision is just heard in the room. It's very transparent. I think it starts to get hard once you go beyond that, and especially once you go beyond, I think they say 150 people, where as a human, most humans just can't know everyone anymore. And the other big change is you have to go to multiple tiers of management, you know, because initially you just need one good sales leader, you just need one Matt Gorniak, but all of a sudden now the scale we're hitting at G2, you're over 350 people now. As I mentioned, we're just hired, and Enrique, he's our VP in Europe, right? But now Matt has to build a multi-tier 
tier global sales leadership structure. And that's where I think a lot of founding teams will struggle is you have to go from being a manager and being able to run one team to building a global, scalable, multi-tier leadership org. And it does really just change the game. And I do think Reed Hoffman and Blitzscale does a great job articulating the difference between an executive and a manager. And I think that executive being able to build multiple global teams, manage more at the theme level versus at the hands-on action level. And that's a big change and transition that I think many you know founding teams really struggle with. It is indeed a big change. And I have a lot of CEOs who have contrarian thoughts on the right amount of direct reports. From your experience, what's the right amount of or optimal amount of direct reports that one single person can have? To me, I would say it would be eight people. And I've also heard that's you know, the amount of people at a great dinner party. You don't want to have it more around the table. And I think to have a good cohesive leadership team and have everyone be able to talk, I think once you go beyond eight, it gets tough. Yeah, no, I do agree. You said they're cohesive. One element that always concerns me is fragmentation between teams themselves. How do you think about, especially with the scaling of teams, creating this kind of inherent alignment between marketing and sales, product and customer success, and the multiple different functions within the org? Are there tips or methods to manage this cohesion and alignment between function? And I mentioned earlier using the V2 mom, inspired by Salesforce, because when our V2 mom at the company level right now at G2, we have eight different methods. You know, one of them, the first one is building our global revenue engine. Obviously, Matt owns that. You know, our second method is driving awareness of G2 and the brand all around the world to every buyer of technology. And Ryan Bonici, our CMO, owns that. But at the same time, the management's goals and incentives are all based, obviously, the primary one being stock options. But even their bonus is actually all based on the achievement of the team goals across all the initiatives. So, for example, you know, if Matt only hits revenue, but we don't hit our marketing goals, he doesn't earn his full incentives. So I think tying the leadership incentives to the company, but then also having that explicit V2 mom alignment and having a weekly call. But I would also say it's a constant challenge and there's healthy tension. In some ways, we want the tension between product and between sales. And one value we have at G2 is discourse it. And that means, hey, we do want to disagree. And I love the Bezos quote, Jeff Bezos, the Amazon founder, disagree and commit. And I think that's something we try to work on in our culture where, hey, yes, we can have healthy disagreements across functions between product and sales. But ultimately, you know, once we come to a decision, we'll have to commit to it, even if we disagree with it. But I think that's a continual challenge for any leader and certainly myself. Can I ask that? In terms of kind of that platform for disagreement, do you as a leader have to create a forum where disagreements and contrarian thoughts are heard in a kind of an open and free discussion? How does one create that disagreement and acceptance of disagreement environment? And I think a lot of it is building enough trust you know, in the personal relationships you know, that people know they're going to be okay, even if they disagree. And I think there we do have an advantage having a team. A lot of us have worked together now across multiple companies where we just trust each other, where we know even we can have violent debate and Matt and I often do. We can yell at each other, but we know we're still okay in our relationship and we know we're going to figure it out together. And so I think having that foundation of trust. And then the other thing I really try to do is just model that authenticity and even just kind of call BS when you see it. And so it's kind of both a combination of having the love and the caring that you really trust each other, but then also having the challenging mindset of, hey, when I see something that's not right, I'm going to call you out on it and vice versa. But I think it's kind of a delicate balance. Like any passionate team, you need both. You need the caring and the trust, but you also need the challenging and calling each other out when 
when needed. No, totally. And it, it almost reminds me of the relationship between kind of investor and board and the founder and executive team. I do want to touch on that relationship because, as I said, Chad's Tim Cop before, and he said about your ability to consistently get the best investors and advisors around the table at each stage. Can I ask then, Goddard, how do you think about investor and advisor selection and what do you really hone in on and look for? Yeah, and I think it's a couple of things. So Tim Cop, by the way, has been an amazing investor. And I think, as you know, he was the CMO of Exact Target and scaled them from 10 to hundreds of millions of revenue. And so I do love having him on the board. And frankly, I first reached out to him when he was still at Exact Target. He was one of my first customers. I actually just cold called him or cold pinged him via LinkedIn. I said, hey, Tim, I've got this idea. I want to blow up Gartner and use customer voice to get you credibility much more quickly. And he loved the idea right away. And so one, I think that's a key thing that the investor genuinely believes in your vision and wants to help you make it happen. And that was certainly the case with Tim. And then I think the second thing is you have to have good chemistry. One thing I always think about is, is the investor actually somebody I want to call? And that's, you know, just a bit of personal chemistry because when times are tough and yeah, I think there's all people we have in our lives who are like, yeah, I don't really want to call them. But when it's actually fun to call them, you know, whether it's with good news or with bad news, but hey, I just want to talk to them. And so I think you have to have that chemistry. And third, I think having investors obviously have a track record that have a network. And I've been very lucky now, you know, my last investor is Jules Maltz from IVP. He's on the, the Forbes Midas list, so very accomplished. But also he led the, our Series C at Steelbrick. So, but I, I really know him. We really get along. We want to work together. And obviously he has a great network, great firm behind him. As with Excel, Arun Matthew led our Series B, same thing, where he and I genuinely get along. And then with Excel, obviously have an amazing track record, amazing network. And we can kind of get both, you know, where you have that amazing personal relationship. You enjoy working with each other. And they bring amazing track record and network to your company. Then you really get the best of both worlds. And it is easier, certainly, you know, once you have a track record. But I do think any entrepreneur, you can focus on that chemistry and focus on getting investors that can truly help you. And I think one of the biggest things to help, people say what's helped them. One of the biggest things to me is, hey, help me find customers, right? Help me find revenue. At the end of the day, that early days, especially, that helps more than anything else. And that's one thing Tim Cobb, Excel, IVP have all done. They bring their networks, they bring customers, they bring relationships. And that really helps us scale faster. Totally. And I think not enough founders actually really leverage their VCs for BD. I do have to ask, for me now, investing myself, how do you think about the ability for founders and investors to be friends? Often people say there's a line of professionalism that needs to be drawn and that maybe shouldn't be the case. How do you feel about the friendship between founders and investors and board members? And I think you definitely can be friends. And I would say the same with my leadership team. You know, I've talked about Matt Borney a couple of times, but he and I also through building companies have become best friends, but I'm still his boss and he still respects that. And, you know, probably similar with my board members where they're still my boss and I respect that. But I also think for me, that's one of the things I love about business. It's a common challenge and I do think you can forge deep human bonds and friendships through it. And frankly, I think if you don't, then you're really missing something because to me, that's kind of the point of it now, especially, you know, building, well, why build another company? A lot of it is, you know, I think the amazing human relationships I can build through building the company. So uh, I really, I, I love building friendships through uh, through work, including those with my investors. So do I. So it's uh, very refreshing for me to hear that. I, before we move into my favorite, though, being the quick fire round, I do want to touch on the large levels of funding that we've seen lately, kind of resulting in incredibly large marketing budgets of late. What's going on with marketing budgets today from your perspective, Goddard? And I think you're right. I think it's just so hard to break through the noise, you know, because there are, everyone's raising hundreds of millions of dollars now, and there's just so much content marketing. And I've seen graphs, you know, the amount of content on the internet is growing 10x every year. There's 10x more startups, 10x more capital. And I think really the hard part now is 
not to start a business, not to get a product launch, but to break through the noise. And obviously, marketing is one answer. But I think just dollars doesn't get it done. And that's where we're lucky also to have Brian Bonici as our CMO. He came from HubSpot. And really, a lot of it we're focusing on. And really, what you're doing here, Harry, is you know how do you create unique content? Because that insightful content, that is what breaks through the noise. And I'm sure for you as an investor, that's also, you know, I think how I'm sure you're getting a lot of your differentiation, your deal flow is, you know, by doing amazing content like you're doing with these uh, podcasts. Well, that's very, very kind of you. And for sure, absolutely it is. I'm very passionate about that going forward. But I do want to move into my favorite element, Goddard. So it's a quick fire round. So essentially, I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds or less. Are you ready to rock and roll? Yes, let's go. This is a very hard start. The best board member you've worked with and why? Uh, that is a hard one because I've had many great ones. So I would go with Jules Maltz, just him being my most recent one. But I think now that he's backed me in two companies in a row, leading our Series C, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I really enjoy working with him. When's the right time to pour fuel on the company fire, so to speak, Goddard? It is when you find that product market fit. But really, I think mean, the, the way you see it is your sales reps just start to crush their numbers. And I remember that at Steelbrick where you know we had seven quarters in a row. And once all your sales reps are hitting, it's kind of obvious, hey, pour more fuel in the fire, do more marketing, raise more money. Cass, what do you do when shit hits the fan, Goddard? What's your coping mechanism? Well, one, I think feel the pain, feel the emotion, and then act super quickly. Because the good news is that sense of panic, the anger, it creates energy and you can act right away. So I think feel it and then go. Do you agree with the hire fast, fire fast mentality? No. Now, the way I think about that is like, who wants to join a company with that mentality? You know, so I, I like to hire diligently. And frankly, if we have to manage someone out on performance, we also will do that diligently more slowly because I think that's what everyone deserves. And uh, so I really don't like that philosophy. No, I love that. And I completely agree with you on that thinking. Tell me, what would you most like to change in the world of SaaS today? You've seen many generations in the SaaS world, so to speak. What would you most like to change today? Well, I think it's uh, SaaS shelfware. And I have seen a lot of that, frankly, even at Salesforce, right, where you kind of oversell licenses and products a customer doesn't need. And now I look at companies like Slack that, you know, where you pay on demand. And I think that's actually a trend also G2 will drive with track because we help you actually manage your spend. So I think paying based on actual usage will be the future. Can I ask, does that not discourage users from using your product? I'm, I'm fascinated by pricing mechanisms and I'm always concerned by volume-based pricing because of the discouragement that users might feel from using the product, so to speak. Is that ever a concern? I think that's a fair point. And I do think you can overcome it where people can pre-commit a bit like the cell phone plan, the mobile phone plan, right, where they could pre-commit to levels of usage so they know it's a fixed cost. But I still think it's a better concept ultimately also for the vendor because then if the customer doesn't use your product, you don't get paid, right? And, and what better alignment is there than that? Absolutely. And then final one, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Now, you can choose the start point. It can be the start of big machines. It can be the start of G2. It can be the start of steel bricks. But what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started dot, dot, dot? And I will go back big machines and it was my first enterprise software company, but just the importance of sales and that sales and closing the next deal, especially early days in any B2B SaaS business is the most important thing. And I just wish I'd focused more on sales and not finance strategy and all, all the other stuff. Goddard, as I said, I've been a fan of G2 actually for a long time. I uh, have many great things from Tim and from Ryan. So huge thank you for joining me today. And uh, I really, really enjoyed this, Goddard. Thank you, Harry. Enjoyed it as well. Look forward to, to seeing you in London in June. 
I mean, what a guest Goddard was to have on the show there. And if you'd like to see more from Goddard, you can find him on Twitter at GoddardAble. Likewise, it'd be fantastic to welcome you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. Really would love to see you there. But before we leave you today, you have to check out Go Nimbly. Go Nimbly is the world's first revenue operations consultancy for SaaS companies. Revenue operations is a framework that makes revenue the key metric for your entire organization, resulting in more efficient and productive teams, a better customer experience, and maximized revenue. Go Nimbly helps companies create an operational roadmap and executes work as an extension of their internal team. Their founder Jason is also currently working on a book about how to transform your operations and increase your company's revenue by 26% through RevOps. You can check them out today at gonimbly.com. And if revenue is one core focus, your customers have to be the other. And Reviews.io is the first and only review platform to offer a truly unified Salesforce customer feedback management experience, enabling your business to save time and money while monitoring and improving customer service and revenue. In addition to Salesforce integration, Reviews.io also announces competitor analysis. This powerful tool gives businesses updated review scores and history for their chosen competitors, allowing them to spot trends in customer sentiment and take swift action. Collecting reviews for your business with Reviews.io, a Google licensed review partner, improves online visibility, click-through rates, and conversion by introducing star ratings across paid and organic Google search results. And even better, Reviews.io integrates with 30 online platforms for your free product demo, sign up now at reviews.io or search reviews.io in the Salesforce app exchange and listeners get a free 30-day trial by simply mentioning the podcast when they sign up. And last but by no means least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO at FuseBill. FuseBill is the leading recurring billing, payments and subscription management platform. It ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Hi, Harry. My tip for this week is on how to make major decisions. Make major decisions based on data and not gut feel. As entrepreneurs, we at times are guilty of making major decisions based on instinct and not based on data, especially in the early days. Avoid big mistakes by taking the time, getting the data, making the decision. Rinse, wash, repeat. Thanks so much for that, Tyler. Informed decision-making is one of the keys to success. You can also find success with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. And I want to say I just so appreciate your support, really. It means so much you tuning in, and I cannot wait to bring you a special episode next week.